Thank you for listening to the Sunday School Teaching Ministry of Pastor Luke Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. All right, praise the Lord. The book of Romans. We're going to go to Romans chapter 6 today. This is class we're calling God's Power to Transform Anyone. The book of Romans, again, is the Christian Constitution. It's the Magna Carta of our faith. There is just no book. It is an unmatched book, the book of Romans. The Apostle Paul gave us 2,000 years ago by the Holy Spirit giving it to him. And so, so thankful for this amazing book. Such the doctrine uh, for who we are, what we believe. Well, this morning, I wonder who's heard of the uh, Stockholm Syndrome. Probably a lot of you have and know what that is. It's one of the strangest things. Let me take you back to its history and where, we, where the term comes from. There was an event in 1973 when a bank robber took four people hostage in Stockholm. And um, he took them hostage for several days. Actually, the standoff between him and the police took six days. And uh, at first, the hostages were just paralyzed with fear. And he locked them away, but then he would feed them and at least give them what they needed and keep them going. I mean, there was, uh, the, the media was there. It was a media circus talking to the prime minister over the phone. I mean, it was just all over the news. But through the course of those days, something happened in the psyche of those people who were hostages Um, a couple of them started to really sympathize with their captor. And after they got out and everything was said and done, they defended the bank robber. Not only did they defend him, but they started to raise money for him. And one of the ladies even fell in love with him and almost married him. This young woman, Kristen Enmark, though later on, thankful that she never did marry that guy because he went on to rob more banks and have more issues. He, she, uh, she said this, it's some kind of context you get into when all your values, the morals you have change in some way. The Stockholm Syndrome. They, they use that now a, a lot when people have been kidnapped and the kidnapper or the kidnapped E will fall in love with the kidnapper or something. Something will happen in their brain and they almost look at this kidnapper as their God or somebody who can provide what they need and it just messes with people's minds. This reminds me, this Stockholm Syndrome, reminds me of the way that we believers sometimes treat sin. We know it's wrong. We know it will entrap us. We know there are consequences. We know it will hurt our lives. But there's often this strange attachment to it. So what is a believer supposed to do with sin? How do we make sure that we don't stay locked in to the very sins that Jesus saved us from? Now in this next chapter, we're going into Romans chapter 6, Paul is going to get very practical on how to deal with sin. Dealing with sin in the life of a believer. How does a believer in Christ deal with this issue of sin. 
But first, before we get very practical on the day-to-day stuff, one of the things we need to do is fully understand our new relationship with sin. Now that we're saved, now that we have Jesus in our life, what's our new relationship to this thing called sin? Now, let me, to, to do that, though, I need to review real quick. So, the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1, verses, chapters 1 through 3. Really, it was about the condemnation of the sinner. Uh, every person is a sinner, is what uh, God is trying to help us see. Every single human being is going to sin. There is none righteous, no, not even one. And because of our sin, that we are under the wrath of God. And we are going to face that wrath someday. We will be, uh, we will be under God's punishment when we die. And so once Paul was able to, even those people who thought, oh, I'm a good person, I've done so good, I go to church, I do all these things. No, you are a sinner. You've done wrong and you need something for your sin. Then Romans chapter 4 and 5 really talked about the justification of that sinner. How does that person made righteous? Well, what happens is once you put your faith in Christ, there's a miraculous righteousness that only Christ has that then he puts into your account. It's a, it's a righteousness apart from the law. So I can't do enough to go to heaven. I can't do enough to have my sins gone. But what Jesus does is he takes this miraculous righteousness and puts it onto our heavenly account. Therefore, we're saved. We're going to heaven. It's a done deal. But now we're going to move to a new section. Okay, so now you know you're, you've, you're a condemned sinner, but not, no longer. Now you are a justified sinner. You're justified. You've been saved. So now, Romans chapter 6 through the 8, we're going to talk about the sanctification of that sinner or that Christian now or that believer. Making this sinner holy in his daily life. That's what sanctification would mean. How do you take this person now and take them into their just life here on this earth and help them do the right thing? The process that we go through that's going to make us more like Jesus Christ. Now, real quick, it's a process that God does with our participation. We participate, we ask him to help, help in this, and then he helps make a holier person than we were yesterday. And that just keeps going, that should keep going in our life. Now, but the holy life and living that begins with first knowing what our relationship is with sin, our, our new relationship with sin. We need to DTR, define the relationship, okay? If we get sin in the right box in our mind, then we can take it on in the right kind of a way and deal with it. So we, we left off in chapter five where the Apostle Paul says this amazing truth right at the very end. Where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. You cannot sin above God's ability to forgive. There is no sin in the face of this planet that is higher than God's grace. God's grace can cover it, he can forgive it. And where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. And when he saves you by his grace, he covers all of your sins, past, present, and future sins. They're all covered. This is an amazing truth, and it blows our minds. But it seems as soon as you start talking about this grace that abounds and forgiveness to all people for any sin, that all of a sudden you have those who want to abuse this teaching, and they start to come out of the woodwork from every which direction. Now, Paul has to explain now then, as he goes, launches into this, what should be obvious to everybody. Sin is still bad, don't do it, okay? It's just as simple as that. God doesn't like it, he's against it, and stop it. 
But he has to go in because there's going to be some people who are going to try to abuse this whole concept that, oh, well, if I, my sins are covered, well, then great, fantastic. I can sin. Here's what he says in Romans chapter 6, verses 1, or verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? So before we move on and get Paul's answer to this, think about what this is saying for just a second. Should we, the question here is, he's, trying, he's about to answer this question, should we keep increasing in our sin so that God's grace will also increase? And so then we'll have more of God's grace. Oh, what wonderful logic, Ed. Now, now it seems crazy that anybody would even have to address this, but Paul felt the, the need to address this because he knows humanity, and we love our sin, don't we? But I think Paul specifically here, real quick, is answering Jewish critics who are trying to reframe Paul's teaching. They're trying to twist what he's saying. They would say something like this. Okay, Paul, if you're saying that the law, obeying the law, doesn't save a person, and it's just this supernatural grace that comes into a person, well then, according to your logic, let's just keep on sinning because then a grace abounds more and more and more. They don't believe that. Uh, it's, it's wrong. And, but they're going to twist it so that um, it challenges him. Don't you love it when somebody takes your teaching or your beliefs, twists it, and then says, here, uh, defend that. So, okay, I, I, that's not what I believe. Anyway, it's, this is crazy, but there have been people in history who actually have taught this very doctrine. Rasputin, in the early part of the 20th century in Russia, he had a twisted and disgusting view of grace. He taught and he lived at the idea of salvation through repeated experiences of sin and repentance. So he believed that those, because those who sin require the most forgiveness, therefore, if, if you keep on sinning, then w without restraint, then you get more of God's grace when you repent for that moment uh, than just the ordinary sinner. So, and so he actually lived that way and he is very notorious for his blatant, evil, and wicked lifestyle. And he taught that this is the way to salvation. Now that's obviously a very extreme example, but, but this also happens in other ways. There's a professor, uh, D.A. Carson, who's uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and he told about a young man, an experience he had with a young man from French West Africa, and they were practicing their German together, and they would meet together regularly. And here's what he wrote. He said, once a week or so, we went out for a meal together. In the course of those meals, we got to know each other. I learned that his wife was in London training to be a medical doctor. He was an engineer who needed fluency in German to, in order to pursue doctoral studies in engineering in Germany. So I soon discovered that once or twice a week, he disappeared into the red light district of town. Obviously, he went to go pay his money and have his women. Eventually, I got to know him well enough that I asked him what he would do if he discovered that his wife was doing the same thing in London. Oh, he said, I'd kill her. <laughs> and, and he said, uh, well, that's a bit of a double standard, isn't it? And uh, he said, well, you don't understand where I come from in Africa. The husband has the right to sleep with many women. But if a wife is unfaithful to her husband, she must be killed. Uh, but then he said, but, but you told me that you were raised in a mission school. 
you know that God, the God of the Bible does not have double standards like that. And then he said, he said with a big smile on his face, ah, but God is good. He's bound to forgive us. That's his job. Sadly, for the name of Christ, this abuse of grace comes out in many ways today among believers. And typically when there is an abuse of grace teaching, it's because somebody is trying to get away with something. Look back a little further and there is somebody trying to get away with something. Now let's be clear, and Paul will basically go into this. There is never a biblical allowance for sin anywhere in the Bible. And abusing grace, by the way, is always self-defeating. Eventually, it will end badly. It always does, and I've seen it again and again. It's kind of like the defund the police movement. That idea is self-defeating. There's gonna be problems, and it's the same thing here. You defang God's principles, <laughs> then you're gonna have problems. We should always remember that this, when, we, when we're reading about the grace of God here, that this is, uh, that there is never a biblical allowance for sin. We've got to keep that in our mind, even, especially when we're talking about the fact that we are saved apart from God's law. Now, when I read Romans 6, I come to this conclusion. If someone's attitude is taking grace as license to sin, then I, I have to question this, and this is personal here. Where, what I, if, after we, and you'll, you'll see this, I think, as we go through chapter 6. If somebody's taking God's grace as a license to sin, then I have to question whether or not you even understand salvation. In fact, I understand, I, I have to question whether you've even received it. I don't know if you even have received the gift of God. I don't think you understand this. And primarily because of this truth, here's what I think we'll see. Sin and grace are opposites. Sin and grace are always opposite. So a mature, serious-minded Christian who has experienced the grace of God is not trying to find loopholes to be able to sin without consequences. So, really quick, before I launch into this, I, I want to say that there are extremes on the other side too. Some people say that, <clears throat> you, listen, you can't tell people that God has forgiven all of their sins or, or they're going to throw off restraints. So, you know, in fact, there's a guy who comes in uh, frequently, he calls me frequently, he's given me envelopes, doesn't go to our church, but he's just somewhere in the community, and he's focused on getting people, and obviously getting me, to stop teaching eternal security. He doesn't want me to teach that once, once you're saved, you're always saved, even if you sin again. And so, he, he says that you can't tell people that you're, they're once saved, always saved, or they're never going to obey God. And I've told him, listen, I, in my office, I've sat with him, I said, listen, I hate and I despise the idea that some might abuse the grace of God and turn it into lasciviousness. I, I despise that idea. But I will not go against scripture because it is very clear that God does forgive all of our sins and we are eternally secure in him. And if somebody is abusing it, it's just because they don't even understand and maybe they've not, they're not even saved at all. So the sin and the grace issue seems to bring out extremes in both directions, but all of it really is answered right here in Romans chapter six. If you pay close attention, you'll see it. So I'm gonna try to bring that out for us here. Paul, here's Paul's response 
to this question. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Verse 2, God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Now, here's how Paul deals with this. That is the most ridiculous thing I have ever heard. That's basically the emotion in that statement, God forbid. Literally, that statement, God forbid, is may it never be, with, with three exclamation points. The Living Bible says, of course not. The Phillips translation says, what a ghastly thought. Gag, gag. Spit, spit. That's what it means. <clears throat> this is a, the strongest renunciation of even the thought of something. God forbid is a disgusting and wicked thought. And then he gives the whole matter in a nutshell. So this is the believer's relationship with sin. And he says it right here in this verse that we are, number one, dead to sin. We have to understand that. A believer is dead to sin. And Paul's point, if you're dead to sin, then why would you think it's okay to live in sin? This makes absolutely no sense. Sin and grace are opposites. And since a Christian is covered in God's grace, then Christianity and sin are opposites. Come on. This is why I question whether or not a grace abuser even understands salvation and if they're even saved because you you must not get the cross and you must not understand what Jesus did on the cross. He died for sin. Sin. uh, Everything that breaks God's law, that's what he died for, so obviously he hates it. A person who's justified from sin has truly become dead to sin. That's the whole purpose of grace, getting rid of the sin issue and putting us on a new path to righteousness. See, we can be likened to, a, to citizens of a, of a dictator. When somebody is living under a dictator, they must do what he says. They have to do what he says. But once they escape or leave or the dictator dies, or let's say they go live in a new nation, they are now dead to that tyrant's power over their lives. That tyrant, that dictator can say all he wants in his nation, but now they're in a new place. They're in a new kingdom, and they don't have to obey that dictator any longer. They are dead to him. God puts a believer in a brand new kingdom. That's what we talked about last week. We were born in Adam's kingdom, but now we're placed into Christ's kingdom. And now we are freed up. We don't have to do what sin tells us to do. We do not have to obey sin. He freed you up. You don't have to do what it says. You now have a new master. Why would a person go back to the old dictator and live under his horrible tyrancy? Here's how we know that we became dead to sin. Verse three, know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. So being baptized into his death means you were spiritually immersed, baptized, immersed in Christ while he was being killed on the cross. There was a spiritual thing that took place. You were immersed in him while he was on the cross. Spiritually speaking, just like you were in Adam, sinning, you were also in Christ when he was on the cross. And Paul's word for this is baptism. And I think he's using it in a spiritual sense here primarily. The idea behind the ancient Greek word for baptized is baptizo, which means to immerse or to overwhelm something. The Bible uses the idea of baptism in several different ways, baptizing something. 
He, when a person is baptized into water, they're immersed or they're covered in water. By the way, that's why we immerse people for baptism. That's not why we don't sprinkle. And then when they're baptized with the Holy Spirit, uh, the Bible talks about somebody being baptized with the Holy Spirit. It means they're immersed or covered with the Holy Spirit. When they're, in Mark chapter 10, it says people are baptized with suffering. That means they're immersed or covered with suffering. Here Paul refers to being baptized, immersed in Jesus Christ. So the believer, spiritually, was completely immersed in Jesus when he was dying on the cross. There was this thing that was taking place on the cross that we couldn't see from the outside, but there was this spiritual thing going on where, where the believer is in Christ. By the way, this is why the church ordinance of baptism is such a powerful outward picture of what has taken place and of our salvation. And Paul's probably hinting at that too. There's a double meaning here. See, getting dunked in the water can't save a person. You can't just go get dunked in some pool of water and say, okay, I'm baptized, now I'm going to heaven. That's not what this is saying. All that is is a picture of what has taken place spiritually. Think about the image for just a minute. A person goes down into the water when they're baptized, and that's a beautiful picture of being immersed in Jesus when he was dying on the cross. That was you, that your old life, your old, your old sinner, going in and being buried and dying. And then you, when you come, you come out of the water, it's a picture of you rising with Jesus when he rose from the dead. But, but what is pictured there? Think about it. What's still in the water when you come out? What's still in that water? The picture is that your old sinful ways, the old sinful you is still in the water and he's dead. And you get up out of that water and you go on with a new life. But the old you is, is still dead. You're dead to sin. He's still in there. And you come out a brand new person. Baptism is an outward sign of this inward spiritual event. And it's, it's also picturing this amazing connection that we have now with Christ, this inward spiritual uh, close connection. We are in Christ. This is deep stuff, but it's so important. Now, I want to talk about this for just a minute. We're now talking about one of the most glorious doctrines in the Bible. It's what we call the doctrine of identification or the doctrine of the union with Christ. I put, I'm just for real, real quick uh, sake here, I, there's some of the biblical analogies in the Bible for our union with Christ. A building and a foundation a husband and a wife. These are all pictures in the Bible that picture our union with Christ, our identification, our baptism with Christ. Building in a foundation, a husband and a wife, a vine and branches, a head and a body, Adam and his descendants, shepherd and sheep. These are all beautiful biblical analogies. There's also some biblical statements that picture this. The Bible says we are in Christ or Christ is in you. We are partakers of Christ and partakers of the divine nature. We are one spirit with the Lord and God's seed is remaining in me. It's all these words that describe this union with Christ. There's also these bi biblical benefits of our union with Christ. That is eternal security. You are in Christ. You know, this is one of the first things I tell people if they question once saved, always saved. I say, listen, if you understand this idea of being in Christ, you were in Christ when he died on the cross and you were in Christ when he rose from the dead. You are in him. There's an identification, there's a union there. You wouldn't even be worried about eternal security. 
because you'd know it's the case. You're in Christ. You can't get out of Christ. You're in him. And it was there, and then it was here, and then it was here and here. You, now that's it. You only, that's, that's all that's happening. And then f- it, fruitfulness, and then gifts for serving and fellowship with Christ. These are all wonderful benefits of our union with Christ. But this, identifi- this idea of identification with Christ or union with Christ is so strong in Scripture that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul used it to warn people. There were some people in the church, there was a, there were some people in the church who was, you know, kind of lo- taking a blind eye to this, some people, some guys who were going out and committing adultery with harlots. And they thought, ah, well, you know, whatever, it's not that big a deal. Maybe they thought grace is covering it, that's fine. But he said, listen, if you join yourself with a harlot, you have just taken Christ in there with you. Look what he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Your bodies are the members of Christ. You are so in union with Christ that your body is members with him. So if you go into that harlot, you're actually taking Christ into that harlot with you. That's how close you and Jesus are. That's how immersed you are together when you become a saved person. And it's essentially, it's the same idea here in Romans chapter six. How could you abuse grace and keep on sinning and think everything is fine if, if you are in a complete union with Jesus Christ. How could you do that? How could you even think that? How does this make any sense? And now Paul clarifies this idea of not only dying with Christ, but rising with him. So a believer's relationship with sin is first of all that we are dead to sin, but we are also now alive in Christ. Verse four, therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Logically, since we are in Christ in death, then we are also in Christ in his resurrection. The old me went into the tomb and is now dead. The person who came out of the tomb is totally a new person. You know, have you ever uh, had that issue if you're an Apple phone user, iPhone user, you know, there's that time, and I've had this happen, where, you know, you're going through, and then it just freezes up, something happens. Hasn't happened in a long time, but, you know, you, it's just not working. You call Apple, and they say, well, you know, I'm sorry. We've gone through all the steps with you. We're going to have to just completely reset your phone, erase everything, and start over. And you're like, no, no. And so you go through the process. You erase everything. You try it, and it still doesn't work. And you think it's, everything's fine, and, uh, but... But, uh, but it doesn't work, and so you take it into the Apple store, and they, they take it into the back, and you're standing out there waiting for a while in the store, and they're in the back doing whatever do they do. And they come out, and they say, listen, I, we're so sorry. Your, your, your phone is beyond repair, and, um, and we are going to have to give you a brand new phone. We're sorry. And you say, oh, no problem. <laughs> and they give you a brand new phone. It's the newest model, and it's all nice. and all. Now, this is what happens with us. We come to God, and we say, God, uh, I'm broken. I'm messed up. <laughs> I got a lot of issues. And he said, he, he can't just reform us. No, he says, you're so bad. <laughs> I got to bury you and make you a whole new person. I got to give you a whole new life. I'm you're now dead to sin, but now you're alive in Christ. You're a brand new person. Everything is new. And now I want you to go walk in this newness of life. That's what it says here. 
And that's what this verse is, should all lead to. This is what all of this should be leading to. All of this dead in Christ, all of this in Christ, all of this stuff should be leading to that I should now walk in newness of life, not like the old me, not like the old stuff I used to do or the old stuff that I used to be into. No, that stuff is gone. I'm walking in a brand new life, opposite of sin. Grace and sin are opposites. Verse five, for if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Another way of saying that we are dead to sin is by saying it this way, our old man is crucified with him. Same thing. The old man is not your dad. It's (laughs) the old sinful man, the old sinful me. It's that part of us that was in Adam. It's the tyrant of sin over our life that has kept us trapped in sin. It's the bank robber who has held us hostage and made us do everything he told us to do. But Jesus took that old man, that old sinful uh, person that we were, and he crucified that person, and he left him in the tomb, left him in the grave, and, and then we came out a brand new person in Christ. The old man is destroyed. So now we should not serve sin. Don't go back to the tyrant. Don't go back to the dictator and live under what he's saying. We don't have to do what he says. We don't have to do what the hostage taker says. Verse seven, for he that is dead is freed from sin. Because the old you died with Christ, the power of sin cannot make you or me do anything. You are freed from sin. I am freed from sin. Sin's power over me, its authority over me is broken. Therefore, listen, if you or I sin, it's not because we have to. It's because we choose to. When Jesus died, he released us from from sin in three senses. He released us from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and the presence of sin. Two of those we get right now. Right now, if we're saved, we've accepted Jesus Christ's payment for sin, then we are no longer under the penalty of sin. We're not going to go to hell. And we're also no longer under the power of sin. We don't have to do what sin tells us to do. Before we're saved, we are locked in a a situation where we are a slave to sin. But after we're saved, we are no longer a slave to sin. We do not have to do what sin tells us to do. The last thing is the presence of sin, and that's not gonna be fully taken care of until we get to heaven. Well, there would be no sin even on a daily basis, no sin whatsoever. But being set free from the penalty of sin is kinda like a person who's executed for murder in an electric chair. So you take a person who has killed someone and now they're going to be executed in in the electric chair. Once that person dies, he is now freed from the penalty of his sin. (laughs) He's justified. His sin is paid for. He paid the price. Like us, we're the murderer. And we died in Christ. 
The penalty for all of our sin has been paid for. Jesus did that for us. He took the electric chair for us. And we were in him dying, therefore we're dead. There's no double jeopardy. We cannot be condemned again for our crimes and go to hell. God's not going to do that. The penalty of sin is released. Our death has been died. By the way, if people would understand this part of salvation, they would not be, again, confused about eternal security. This is a one and done thing. All of our sins were paid for in Christ. Our death has been died. It's already done. We can't do anything with that um, anymore. Verse 8, in fact, now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. So this union with Christ not only keeps us out of hell, but gloriously we are someday going to live with him. This is an exciting truth, everybody. The Christian (laughs) always has a bright hope and a better future. He He or she can always say, the best is yet to come. I am going to live with him. And I can be confident about that every single day. I don't have to go to bed tonight thinking, you know what? I may not go to heaven for what I did today. I might not. No. The penalty of sin is gone. The, 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 the electric chair, the, the cross, the instrument of uh, judgment has all been taken care of. God's wrath has been satisfied. But what does that mean for me here and now? Verse 9, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once. But in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Death had Jesus for three days, but then he came triumphantly out of that tomb. This great enemy now, death, has no more power over Jesus to kill him. And that goes for you and me too. Death has no dominion over us. When we die here, we go straight into the arms of Jesus. So if we are now dead to sin's dominion over our life because of our union with Christ and we're raised up with him because of our union with Christ, what should we be doing now in this life? So I'm dead to him, I'm raised, I know I'm gonna live with him someday, all my sins are taken care of. This whole thing is all done and and handled by Jesus. So now what now? As I am in Christ now, what do I do? What should we be doing with our life? Well, we should be doing the same thing that Jesus did with his life. And what is it? He liveth unto God. He liveth unto God. He liveth unto God. What is Jesus doing now that he is alive? Is is Jesus sinning? (laughs) Of course not. Absolutely not. So we shouldn't be sinning. And we should, we should be obeying God. We should be living our life unto God. He liveth unto God. His life is all about the honor, the glory of God. And since we are in Christ, it's the same thing for us. Our, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? We should now be living unto God. Why would we go back and walk in the same way as we did before we were saved? Everything's new. We have a new attitude towards sin and a new love for righteousness that we never had before. Before, we hated God's law, but now we love and appreciate when we read God's law and what it says to us and how wise it is. The old way was sin, the new way is obedience. The the new way is righteousness and 
and happy obedience. Now, now all these are wonderful and liberating truths. But maybe like you, uh, but maybe like me, excuse me, you've noticed that fighting sin is still an issue. Say, thank you, Pastor Luke. Appreciate all that nice talk from Romans chapter 6. But I'll tell you what, on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, when it really comes down to it, I, I know it's, the sin has lost its power in my life, but it still, still feels powerful sometimes. So what do we do about this pesky presence of sin on a daily best basis? Well, this is the, day, the daily battle that we face, and it's our greatest battle as Christians. There's nothing more important and more serious than this. But how do we defeat sin practically? Three words to keep in mind here in the next few verses, and we're gonna expound on them next week, so I won't go into great, great detail today. But here we are. Verse three, or number one, excuse me, is this word, no, K-N-O-W. This is a word that comes out in Romans chapter six frequently. Verse three, it says, know ye not. Verse six, it says, knowing this. Verse nine, it says, knowing that. God wants us to know all the things that we just talked about. So we need to know all those things. We need to have that, we need to be armed with that knowledge. Without that knowledge, we'll be defeated from sin, uh, would be defeated by sin from the very start. Kind of like when slavery ended in America. The slaves need, first needed to know that they were free before they could do anything about it. They needed to know, they needed to have the knowledge. And we need to have the knowledge that we are also free from a slave master, that is sin. So. So this is why so many people choose to memorize Romans 6, by the way. You need to have this in our hearts and in our minds. Memorize it. Once you know all these truths about your relationship, then the second word is reckon. And it's not just, <laughs> some people say this proves why Apostle Paul, he was from the South. Reckon. <laughs> Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then in verse 12, excuse me, verse, yeah, let's read verse 12. I, I have so much to do here, but our time is up, so I'm gonna finish this next week. But verse, let's read verse 12 and 13 so I don't leave you completely hanging so, that you, so, none of, so we don't sin this week, all right? <laughs> we, 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 at least we'll fight it. Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in the lusts thereof. And then the last word is number three, yield. Verse 13 tells us, here's what we do on a daily basis. Neither yield your members, that is your body parts, as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. This is so practical and so helpful, and we'll talk about how practical that is, but it's simply giving every body part every one of my body parts to do good so that I don't do bad. It's giving every one of my body parts to do the righteousness that Jesus wants to do in me. Do it today. It's why he saved you and he, it's what he has done for us so that we can have each and every day a life of victory. Lord, we thank We you. hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.